Right now, I am so thrilled to be sitting here with you and being able to share the silence and the, the refuge of safety and good company, and I can't help but be happy about that. At the same time, my heart is sick, as many of you probably, if you've read the news, you know about another, another police shooting of a 15-year-old black boy, completely unarmed, innocent, bright, beautiful being, just snuffed out. We're two steps from slavery. And if that doesn't just drive you mad, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> because it's, you know, it, it's... At the same time, as much as my heart just aches for their family, for all of us as, as sentient beings that, that uh, share breath and share earth and share this country and share this community, it's just, it's just so painful. And I was thinking while we were sitting about the, the Buddha's first teaching and the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, he says there is, there is, uh, this world is marked by dukkha. This is the dukkha plane. Dukkha is the world for unsatis the word for unsatisfactoriness. Pain, suffering, that which is difficult to bear. If this is any, if there's any doubt that this is a is at least on some measure a hell realm, this is a perfect example of it. And this stuff happens every day. And then in the midst of this, this is the other part that's that's maniacal, is we have spiritual teachings, and I'm sometimes guilty of it myself, that says, you know. You can be happy in this world. How the hell can you be happy in a world where, where innocent people are just mowed down for no other reason than the color of their frickin' skin? And then we're the cruelty of thinking we're doing something wrong if we're not happy. That there's something wrong with us. And then it, we impose these oppressive spiritual notions that I should be somehow be able to sit in the middle of it with complete ease of well-being. Our hearts are meant to break. We're meant to hurt. And we're meant to, and if there's any happiness, it's not the happiness of being smoothed out and easy. It's the happiness of being able to just sit and take the the measure of pain and not for one moment think it, it should be otherwise, but really seeing the way it is. And in that at least not adding, not compounding our pain with, with the extra arrow of thinking I should be happier. So I, for any cruelty that I have in my ignorance ever ever impo you know, planted a seed in your mind that somehow you should be happier than, than you are. Uh, because, I are uh, because I share and I, I believe in meditative ideals, but if, if it's ever felt in any way oppressive, like, God, I'm not getting it, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just a spiritual failure just like everything else, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for any part that I may have had in that. Because 
I mean, really, enough, we should just hurt and be off the hook for trying to be so special, so spiritual. Just let your heart break. Mine is. At the same time, I'm so happy to be with you and to be able to say that out loud. We're two steps from slavery. And got to be awake to that. And, and have that be absolutely constitutionally intolerable. If not, we are asleep and we can wake up. But it doesn't mean you're going to have this good mood. You're going to be a warrior. You're going to be somebody that says, no, that's not okay. And, and you maybe, I don't know, for me, it's just, I, I can't just, I can't as easily, be, just because of my privilege, uh, I just can't just float through my life oblivious. You know, and that's the hope of Dharma practice, is it wakes you up out of your shroud of ignorance and that can just let I'm not sure how to express that that uh, that heartache some some of us will will just hit the you know some of us will practice some of us will ordain how do you how do you accommodate this dukkha plane this plane of existence you know it's fun just a second this um when I, um, when I used to do a lot of long practice periods back in the, in the um, 70s, 80s, early 90s, spending you know, months and months in silence, and, and it was really beneficial. And I highly recommend it if, if any way that you, your life can some point incline toward having periods of seclusion and, um, and intensive practice. But I, I developed very strong friendships along the way. And we had a little secret club called the Dukkha Club. Remember, Dukkha is the word for, for stress, suffering, that which is hard to bear, unsatisfactoriness, traditionally translated as the wheel out of Rama. Something's off. But not to try to sugarcoat it. And so the, the motto of the, of the Dukkha Club is, or the, the, no, actually the way to be, um, to be accepted in the Dukkha Club is you have to have given up hope. <laughs> so we somehow, if you are a, if you are a person, maybe the Buddha was one of the only, only teachers in history who was willing to say, hey, this is a Dukkha plane. This is in some measure a hell realm that we live in. Open to this. Don't sugarcoat it. That was his prescription. Open to it. Welcome it. Don't become romantic about it. You don't need to join a club, but just see it for what it is. And don't burden yourself with the, with the cruelty of thinking that you should somehow, that something's wrong and something's wrong with you. So that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is what will really make this dukkha world even more miserable is being caught up in trying to run from the reality that's here, either through by either by holding unrealistic spiritual ideals, by craving for sense pleasures and just getting lost in a stream of endless running and called samsara, endless wandering. 
craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, trying to shut everything out. So that's a, a pure recipe to compound the stress that's always here, already here. But fortunately the Buddha also shared, besides shouting from the hilltops, hey, this is a hell realm of sorts. Said there, it's possible to at least find some balance, some open-heartedness, some cessation of the strong habit of endless searching and endless running, endlessly building a monument to the to the spiritual uh, spiritual um, grandiose um, messianic fantasies that you have. That there's an end to it, and it's a possible. It's possible to, in the middle of it, as evidenced by the fact that many people here tonight, in the middle of it, you won't necessarily always be joyous and happy. I'm just repeating myself. But in the middle of it, you can know peace. You can know. You can know peace, and then be able to to um, be whole enough your nervous system regulated enough, your heart open enough to then um, see what's needed, see how to help. See, be less concerned about me, my, mine, and more concerned about us. Instead of me. Yet, the tendency is in our, we are innocently taught to be individualistic. And we are innocently learning how to be completely disembodied through our absorption in our, our technology, our um, obsession with, you know, what's next. I, someone just passed on, did I read it here last week? Maybe I, I, maybe I didn't have it yet. But somebody sent me the, the uh, cover of a magazine, I think it was a snowmobile magazine, uh, yeah, snowmobile magazine, on the cover it says, what really matters is what's next. <laughs> that's, that's the motto of our times. What's, what's matter, what seems to matter less is the fact that we're sitting together, the miracle of that. What seems to matter, what matters less is knowing your neighbors. You know, I heard a wonderful interview on uh, KQED, or, or maybe it was KPFA, maybe some of you heard it, but it was a professor who was talking about how you can see that the whole, this whole intolerant, this whole movement of, of intolerance is much of it is is the result of the of not having not not being in community with one another not knowing our neighbors if we knew our neighbors and if we were really glued to each other as neighbors we we would be fighting for some, we wouldn't let somebody be deported we'd be but when we don't know them that, that resonance, that, of course we do have a kind of collective resonance, but it doesn't rise to the same effect. And he cited this time where 
where there were, um, it was some place or some country where the women, I forgot what it was, but I, you know, I've forgotten the details, but the women knew each other and they became so much more effective at their activism because they had these deep connections as a community. So we sent, tend to care more about our bank account and where we're going and what we're becoming than our neighbors. Someone recently said they, they were kicked out of their place in San Francisco. It's happening all the time now. But they, were, they, had, they felt bereft of being displaced and that, oh, you have to do anything you can to live in San Francisco. But then they were, they were um, forced to move over to Oakland, which many people are. But then they started meeting their neighbors. There was a little more space, and people seemed to connect with each other. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, all these row houses, maybe the people behind the houses know each other, but you don't see people sitting out on the porch, shooting the breeze. And, who, and then nobody has time to shoot the breeze. That's a systemic issue. It's not your fault. That's part of the dukkha plane. So we do this, we do two things. We try everything possible to make each other, ourselves and each other happy. We do our practice, we do our community service, we do our activism, we do everything. But at the same time, we just keep doing, because you can't. If you care, you're going to want, you want to be happy and free of suffering. And so it's imperative that we follow our heart and do that which will be a benefit. At the same time, we have to also see through the illusion of perfection and not be so, oppre not oppress ourselves and so be so cruel to ourselves by imposing impossible spiritual ideals in a dukkha plane. This is at least, and the Buddha's teaching, the other thing I was thinking about during the sitting tonight is the, the Buddha's teaching by people who don't un actually understand it, that it sounds pessimistic to them. Does what I say sound pessimistic? And the, the answer always is it's not pessimistic, it's realistic. It just says what it is. And that's all that's really asked for is to, to see this is how it is here. <clears throat> and if I fight it, I suffer more. If I open to it, do what I can, but open to it, I, then I can sit in the middle. So it, I felt, as you probably heard in my voice when I started to speak about, about um, Jordan Edwards, I was, you know, that the fury came forth and we get angry because it's so, I, I feel helpless in a way, to a certain degree, because this is so, it, racism is just so embedded and institutionalized on every level, it's so, it's so embedded in the, in the culture, and it's, in some ways it's so, it's such an, in it, it, people are literally, we're like marionettes, like just being, from the time we're born, just kind of inculcated with this, with this trance that there are others. And, and it just, it just uh, it's so, it's so um, 
insidious and you know and just literally like puppets on a string in this in this kind of collective trance or what we could call cult you know culture is a cult and so on one hand it's like oh, fury on the other hand it's innocent I feel compassion for the the victims, the perpetrators, everybody's kind of caught in this dukkha play of greed and hatred and ignorance. So I, I needed a little bit today, I needed a little bit of, of how to sit with the enormity of pain of just being part of such a, such a, um, a plane of existence. And I, I remembered something I've read quite often here, and I wanted to share this tonight. It was the words of Sam Keane who I think is a theologian and psychologist. He wrote the book, Faces of the Enemy, Reflections of the Hostile Imagination. Shows how hatred, propaganda, and warfare feed a hostile imagination. He urges us to find an alternative to the idea of redemptive violence and the warrior mythology. In this excerpt, he discusses what we might do to counter our tendencies toward revenge or cruelty. He says, to lessen the quantity of cruelty and sadism, we must learn to listen to the cry beneath violence. The victor must hear himself in the victim's cry. The winner feel himself in the humiliation of the loser. So long as we visit pain on another, we need not feel our own pain. Anger lifts depression. For a time, purging our rage on a scapegoat relieves us from, of the feeling. But the need for the cleansing of the unacceptable feelings builds up, and we must plunge into a new circle of violence. The only certain way out of the blind ritual of war is by learning to substitute grief for anger. Those who mourn the childhood love they never had, who treat their own wounds tenderly, learn to forgive and to break the vicious circle of the wounded and the wounded. When we are unable to confess that our own parents, our own governments, our own styles of life have disappointed and injured us, we will inevitably create an enemy on whom we heap our anger. Every day we are not grieving is a day we will be taking vengeance. So again, that reminder to drop into the heart and just feel the impact of our humanity, our collective trance, our collective experience. And I also found this little short passage from Jean Vignette, Menier or something. It's French, I don't know how to pronounce it, sorry. In order to enter the path of forgiveness, we have to lose our feelings of both superiority and inferiority. Each of us has hurt another, each of us has been hurt. Another vote in the midst of this for strong meditative practice 
be able to learn to sit in the middle of it and be able to dwell when grief is present and not have it have it sublimated into vengeance. This is uh, from the Mahamudra teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. Those beings constituted by awareness, that's you, who try to ignore, reject, or grasp awareness, inflict sorrow and confusion upon themselves and upon themselves like those who are insane. I'll read it again. Those beings constituted by awareness who try to ignore, reject, or grasp awareness, inflict sorrow and confusion upon themselves like those who are insane. So I, I look first at this tendency to ignore awareness, forget that we have within us this kind of boundless capacity to this heart-mind that can really take in the world, that can make whatever we're experiencing more workable, more can transform what we're experiencing into, into wisdom, into compassion, into, into wise action, kind of unconfined capacity we have within our hearts. So if you ignore it, you, you miss this. That's why it's such a, a blessing to be reminded, I, I, I like being here because I remind myself, such a blessing to remind ourselves, be reminded of, of this, um, this aspect of our nature, our natural state, and to the, the value of stabilizing it. I really, you know, every day I think it, it's more important than ever to make being attentive being present, the hub around which I do everything. If I don't, I'm, I'm literally like a walking corpse, a sleepwalker. And then, it's, then, then this world just kind of stay, stays in its kind of unconscious state. So if I ignore or reject awareness, which is really kind of running from silence, running from ourselves, running from this what in some ways is a kind of wish-fulfilling jewel. It kind of puts us in the atmosphere of being able to kind of have a, a buoyant life even though there is so much dukkha. Or grasp awareness. Now this one's very subtle in a way. Grasp awareness is you think you have to try to be aware. You don't have to try to be aware, you have to be aware. Awareness is so natural to you. When you try to be aware, you create tension. When you create tension, you create a lot of discursive thinking. You create a lot of discouragement. You create a lot of irritation. And then you're miserable and you just keep getting wound up. And then your very intention to be happy leads you to misery. That's why Nisargadatta, Advaita teacher says, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being conscious. So, so don't grasp awareness, be aware. Be aware. Not do aware. But be aware continuously to the extent that you can. When you remember, remember. And do that in your life that helps you remember. 
And I know you're doing that already. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. But don't just save it for Tuesday nights. I know you're not, but I worry about that. So those beings constituted by awareness, I love that, constituted by awareness. That's what you are. Before anything, before man, woman, whatever your titles, whatever your roles, what is so primary, you're aware. Just be that. Constituted of awareness. Who try to ignore, reject, or grasp awareness, inflict sorrow and confusion upon themselves like those who are insane. So let's, like, I was telling that, just like that Spanish story I tell all the time that, about the guy, you know, um, the father who knocks on his son's door, Jaime. He says, Jaime, get up. Wake up. Did I just tell this last week? Jaime, wake up. Jaime says, I don't want to get up. Dad says, wake up. It's time to go to school. And uh, Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why? You got to go to school. Because I don't like school. It's dull. And the kids tease me. And his father says, well, I'll give you three reasons why you have to go to school. It's your duty. You're 45 years old. And you're the headmaster. You are the headmaster. Wake up. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. Wake up. So, headmasters, thanks for listening to my rant. <laughs> so appreciate being able to just talk and, and confess my delusions and, and say I don't know what to do exactly, other than my heart aches and, and this is the Duca plane. So let's try to find our seat in the middle of it and not have our grief uh, turn into vengeance, have our vengeance turn into grief, and then have our grief turn into peace and love. But not to be too grandiose about it. It's a messy world. Remember the, the young llama from Tibet, 12-year-old llama or 13-year-old llama. He says, I don't tell anybody I'm a llama. They would, the kids would tease me. Well, what's your family, family say? Because his name is you know, Rinpoche, which means precious one. They say, they call me Shrimpoche. <laughs> but then he says, I'm, I'm, he says, I'm Tibetan, but I'm in a Chinese gang. messy here. Even though the Chinese have been so hard on the Tibetans, I got to live here with my own karma. Some skinhead doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese, wants to just kill me. We have to learn to live in samsara and not space out so much about nirvana. 
It's by facing the way things actually are. That's the word, that's the meaning of vipassana. Seeing things as they are. Seeing things as they have come to be. But we are living in the midst of a dukkha plane. And yet we are also living in this room right now in San Francisco in safety, good company. Both are true. But let's pray that any, all beings, if we care, all beings, may all beings feel safe, be able to meet in safety, part in safety. May all beings have ease in their hearts and not have to worry about being killed just because of the color of their skin. May all beings have it. And if nothing more, let our hearts not forget about this. Even if your life is easier. To me, the greatest blessing of being a little more alert and awake is I, I, I feel it. I consider it a blessing. Blessing is not being able to hide away in fear and dullness. That's just delusion. Anyway, I think I'm going on and on. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your generosity. Hope to see as many of you as the room can fit on Saturday at the Mindfulness Care Center. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.